If you have your Bible, I do invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 7 and 8, where in just a moment we'll read from verse 14 of the seventh chapter. And in our study through the book of Exodus, we've come to a, a section in the book that is known as the ten plagues of judgment that God poured out upon the Egyptians before he brought his own people out from bondage. Now, the Bible refers to the plagues in verse 3 as multiplied signs and wonders. And that's the way in which they're described in Scripture. Now, it's interesting because throughout the history of redemption, God has used signs and wonders to show that he alone is Lord God. And so, signs and wonders... Oftentimes you see this language used in connection with each other uh, all throughout the Old Testament. And a wonder is something that stops a person in their tracks. But a sign's a little bit different because a sign points beyond the miracle to some greater truth. And so when signs and wonders, when that language is being used, it's describing the miraculous the supernatural, but there's an ultimate point behind it that points to a greater truth than just the miracle itself. And so that's something that we see with these 10 plagues uh, that really we find from chapter 7 all the way through chapter 11. Now, most Bible commentators will tell you that there have been at least four eras of miracles, signs and wonders, Four different eras of miracles all throughout redemptive history. Three of these have already happened, and there is one that is still yet to come. Uh, Chuck Swindoll says that it was during these periods of these miraculous events, these eras of miracles, that God stepped into the stream of time and space with mighty manifestations of his power. Now, if you will just think about it, those eras of miracles, the first we see in connection with Moses and the Exodus, the second era of miracles came during the days of Elijah and Elisha and during their ministry. The third era of miracles happened during the days of Jesus and the apostles, the ministry of the apostles in the early church. And so the era of miracles that's yet to happen that remains in the future uh, will be during the last days. During that time, God will visit the earth with a series of judgments, meeting out judgment upon a world that has rejected his son, that's rejected his truth, as well as his will and his ways. And in many ways, these plagues that we read about in Exodus sort of foreshadow uh, what that's going to be like in the last days. And so that word plague comes from a Latin term, which means severe blow or wound, and that's exactly what these were. You, you'll remember that God told Moses back in chapter 3 that he would, uh, he would stretch out his hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform. And so God pours out these plagues to demonstrate his sovereign power as the one who alone is God, who tolerates no rivals. Now, we might wonder, why, is that, why exactly are these particular miracles chosen? 
For example, the Nile River becoming blood and that being followed up by a plague of frogs and gnats and so on down the line. Well, we don't have to really use our imagination to imagine why God uses these particular plagues as an instrument of judgment because the Bible gives us the answer in Exodus chapter 12 where God says that he will pass through the land of Egypt and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute my judgments. So the scripture is clear that these 10 plagues, this is God's judgment on the idols, the false gods that the Egyptians sought refuge in, which means that the Exodus ultimately is a showdown between God and the gods of Egypt, which were really not gods, but were idols, inventions of man, idols made with human hands, and yet they were idols aligned with the kingdom of Satan. And so there was a demonic stronghold there in Egypt because of idol worship. But in the end, the people of God are going to be set free. The idols of Egypt are going to be revealed as nothing, and God is going to be proven uh, to be the one and only God. And that's the whole point of the Exodus. And so if you go through these chapters, uh, you ought to highlight the number of times that you see the Lord making this statement, the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Uh, With each plague that comes, each form of judgment, God's purpose ultimately in that judgment is so that the Egyptians know that I am the Lord. So by pouring out His power and a mighty manifestation of His power, uh, God is desiring to be known and worshiped and obeyed. And that's the whole point of judgment. So by performing these signs and wonders, God is striking those mighty blows against Egypt's idols. Now again, we hear that word idol, we may think that it's referring to something that's ancient, something that comes from a more primitive culture, you know, third world stuff. Surely, idolatry is not something that is true of our modern, sophisticated generation. But if that's what we think, we're greatly mistaken. Because idolatry has always been the fundamental issue of humanity, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And what we often fail to see is that the gods that were worshipped, whether it was ancient Egypt or Greece and Rome... These gods were always a means to the end, to some end, so that the the ancient Egyptians ultimately wanted the same thing that so many of us want even in 2023. That's really what they were after, prosperity, fertility, success, pleasure. And so we're still prone to to go hard after those same types of things today. The only difference is that their worship of these idols was overt and conscious, whereas ours seems to be much more subtle in nature. But idolatry is still the fundamental problem with fallen humanity. But as far as ancient Egypt is concerned, I told you last week that the Egyptians were polytheistic. Egyptian religion was polytheistic, and that word simply means many gods. They worshiped many gods. Some estimates say that there were upwards of 2,000 gods and goddesses in the Egyptian pantheon. And some of those were more familiar, like Osiris and Isis and Ra. 
Uh, Pharaoh himself was seen as being a god. He was believed to be the mediator between the gods and the people, the, the one who kind of kept everything in Egypt in balance. And the Egyptians believed that Pharaoh was the life force and the soul of Egypt. And so that serpent-crested crown that he wore symbolized his deification and his majesty. And so it's significant then in chapter 7 when Moses and Aaron cast down their staff and it becomes a serpent. This is God demonstrating his sovereignty over Pharaoh and over the gods that Pharaoh supposedly represented. So God is proving that he alone is God. You might could say that with that initial act, that initial sign in chapter 7, this is going to sort of prefigure everything else that's going to follow by way of these 10 specific plagues that we read about beginning in verse number 14. So I want you to take your Bible and look there with me at Exodus 7, verse 14, where the Bible says that the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. And stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the Lord God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die. The Nile will stink. The Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds and all their pools of water so that they may become blood and there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. And there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. And so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. And seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Now, if you could imagine that, just seven full days while this situation is ongoing. I want to speak from this subject this morning once more, God versus the idols of Egypt. And really what we see with this series of plagues that stretch all the way through chapter 11, this is God doing battle with the idols of Egypt. And so sort of a series within a series itself this is an awesome opportunity for us to deal with this issue of idolatry. Idolatry. Now, you, you look at the plagues of Egypt themselves, and I'm going to follow really a threefold pattern because there seems to be a threefold pattern of plagues that ultimately culminate in the final plague uh, 
which is the most severe plague, the death of the firstborn. And that's associated with Passover uh, for the Hebrews. So the first three plagues are plagues that I'm going to say are plagues that really involve mental distress. The second set of three plagues bring physical discomfort. The third set of three plagues result in economic disaster. And the last plague brings complete spiritual devastation. Now, that's not to say that you can take each plague and put it in its own separate, nice, neat category because there's a lot of overlap here. There's a sense in which all of these plagues bring some level of discomfort. There's a sense in which all of these plagues bring some level of disaster. But what you'll notice is as you move from chapter 7 all the way through these chapters, there's an intensification with each plague. That is, each plague seems to be more severe in nature, ultimately bringing the power of Egypt to its knees and God reigning as sovereign and omnipotent Lord that he is. So this morning, I want us to consider these plagues that bring mental distress, beginning with this very first plague where water is turned into blood. Um, the Nile River, it's interesting. One thing that Egypt looked to as its source was the Nile River. Now, modern economists will tell you that every economy has its lifelines, which are means of transport, communication. I think in recent years, we've all witnessed how supply chain disruptions can have a major impact on the economy. Fuel refineries being shut down oftentimes lead to rising fuel costs. That impacts trucking and shipping. That then affects the cost and availability of items that are at the grocery store. So that the end result is you go to the grocery store to find your favorite brand of cereal or whatever and you notice that the shelves are bare because you can't get it because of that supply chain disruption. Often fuel shortages come from lack of production, which can be caused by a number of factors, uh, natural disasters, economic stalemate or whatever. But it often leads to gas rationing and long lines at the pump which none of us want to see. Now, if something like that's going on in a nation, it doesn't take very long before a major crisis develops, which then threatens to take down an entire economy, and with it, the collapse of entire nations. And it all illustrates how dependent we are as a society on the basic source of our economy. Now, when you think of it in those terms, this kind of gives us a glimpse into what the Egyptians faced when the source of their life was threatened. So notice this plague, plague number one, how the Nile River becomes blood. The Nile River meant everything to the ancient Egyptians. I mean, it was their primary mode of transportation. It was the source of their nourishment. It was even the standard for their measurement in those days. And as such, it was the object of the people's worship. The ancient Greek historian Herodotus referred to Egypt as, quote, the gift of the Nile. That is, if it weren't for the Nile River, the land of Egypt would have been part of a desert that stretches all the way across North Africa to the west, across the Gulf of Suez to the Arabian Desert to the east. But in ancient times, the Nile River overflowed its banks every year 
depositing in that Egyptian river valley the rich silt and soil that had been carried down the Nile from deep within the interior of Africa. In fact, if you look at uh, pictures of the, um, uh, the Nile River Delta, I think I showed you one of these pictures uh, a couple months ago when we first began this study, on both sides in the distance, you see the sands of Egypt, but in that Nile River Delta, you suddenly have just this lush, fertile valley, and, and that was all possible because of the rich silt that was deposited in that valley from the Nile River itself. And so the Egyptians then worshiped the Nile. They saw the Nile as being the source of their life and the source of all of their strength. Maybe you've heard of the legendary expeditions in search of the famous source of the Nile. It's kind of the stuff of legend. Well, I've actually been to the source of the Nile. Uh, the Nile River begins its flow out of Lake Victoria in Uganda. I've actually got a picture of me and a friend of mine. We're standing right there at the famous headwaters of the Nile River as it's flowing right out of that beautiful, pristine lake, Lake Victoria. But it's interesting, the Nile River flows 4,130 miles to the north before it finally empties out into the Mediterranean Sea. But before it empties out into the Mediterranean, the, the Nile is depositing all of its rich silt, and, and, and that makes for lush, fertile crop growth, rich nutrient soil in that Nile River Delta. And so that made Egypt one of the richest, most fertile lands of the ancient world. So you take this combination of factors, the fertile soil, the constant supply of water, the bright sun and blue sky, that produced an abundance of crops. And so it's not significant, nor is it coincidental, that the plagues were directed against these very things, as well as the gods that were associated with them that the Egyptians looked to as their source. So notice a few things here about this first plague. Uh, notice the authoritative demand that's made there beginning in verse number 14. God says, Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh. His, his heart is hardened. He's refusing to let the people go. But I want you to go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. That is, he's going out to the Nile. Now, this implies more than just a simple morning stroll by the river. Uh, it implies perhaps more than just Pharaoh going out to take a morning bath, to bathe in the river. The idea here is that Pharaoh's rituals regularly involved him going down to the Nile to pay homage to the gods. And so it's quite appropriate that the very first of these plagues be directed against the Nile River itself, which was the very lifeline of Egypt or the center of so many of its religious ideas. John Davis is, is an Old Testament scholar who's written so much uh, about this particular time period, but he said that the Nile was considered sacred by the Egyptians. And many of their gods were associated either directly or indirectly with the river and its productivity. There was one god that they worshiped named Kanum, who was considered to be the guardian of the Nile sources. Hapi was believed to be the spirit of the Nile and the dynamic essence of the river itself. 
Osiris was one of the most familiar, famous gods of ancient Egypt. The Egyptians believed that the Nile was his bloodstream. Other historians have pointed out discoveries of ancient manuscripts which included an ancient hymn to the Nile which taught that all of life in Egypt had the Nile as its source. And that ancient hymn said something to this effect, Hail to thee, O Nile, that issues from the earth and comes to keep Egypt alive. He that waters the meadows which is keeping us alive. He that makes to drink the desert and the place distant from the water. This is his dew coming down from heaven. The idea is the ancient Egyptians literally worshiped the Nile. They worshiped false gods that were associated with the ebb and flow of the river. And so it's not hard to imagine Pharaoh making his morning trip down to the river. Maybe he and his officials are singing the lyrics to this hymn in worship of the river that they believed was their source of life. But you see, this particular morning, Pharaoh is being confronted in his idolatry as Moses and Aaron declare, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. And to prove that he alone is the source of life, God is going to transform the very thing that they believe is their source of life into a cesspool of death. So that if you believe that the Nile is the bloodstream of Egypt, if you believe that the Nile is your ultimate source of life, then God says, then let me give you a tangible illustration of of that. Let me give you its blood to drink. And then notice this is followed up by an awesome display that's witnessed. Verse 19, God tells Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, the canals, the ponds, the pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there's going to be blood in all the land of Egypt, in all of the vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Now, it's interesting because the the Hebrew text here, the language at the end of verse 19, simply says that there was blood in the wood and the stone. And whenever this expression is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, it's always used in reference to idols. So perhaps this could be a reference to the custom of, of the priesthood in ancient Egypt. One thing that they prized was personal um, uh, ritualistic purity. And part of their liturgy involved taking their wooden and stone carved idols to the gods and they would wash them on a daily basis. So it could simply be that here these priests, all they now have to wash their idols in is blood. That's all they had. Now, could you imagine what this must have been like where every channel, every stream, every tributary became blood? Not only do the fish die, but the river stinks and the people can't use the water. And the fact that the river's made to stink, this is significant because that ancient hymn to the Nile also said that the Nile was the bringer of food, rich in provisions, creator of good, Lord of majesty, and sweet of fragrance. 
And so you can imagine the shock and dismay and the distress that this would have produced all throughout the land as the Egyptians now look upon what was so beautiful to them, what, what, what had been their, act of, um, their object of worship. They now see it become an ugly thing, repulsive even to behold. And then third, notice the artificial duplicate that's conjured up. Not to be outdone, verse 22 says, the magicians of Egypt did the same thing by their secret hearts, their own secret arts and magic, sleight of hand, which by the way, you know that wherever God is at work in miraculous power, Satan will be somewhere nearby trying to offer a counterfeit in its place. Wherever God is working, the enemy's not going to be far away or far behind, and he's going to try to counterfeit and undermine what God himself is doing. By the way, you see this in the life of the early church, uh, where God is at work in power and lives are being changed. Satan's there trying to counterfeit, trying to counterfeit the gospel, trying to counterfeit Christians. But the point here, Pharaoh's heart remains hardened and he's not going to listen. He turns and he goes into his own house and he's not taking this to heart while the rest of Egypt is left digging for water to drink because they couldn't drink the water of the Nile. Now, just point of application here. If the Egyptians trusted in the Nile as their ultimate source of life, then let me ask this question. What is it that we are tempted to trust as our source of life? or the basis for all of our needs. For the Egyptians, it was the Nile. For modern Americans, it may be the NASDAQ. The stock market, the economy, my bank account, my investment, my retirement. You know, a lot of people right now are talking about the whole collapse of the uh, Silicon Valley Bank 16th largest bank in the country. A lot of commentary, you know, in the news the last couple of days about that. Uh, even some folks l fearing the worst. Could this be sort of a, a rumbling of something similar that happened back in 2008? Could the same thing happen again? And so they're thinking, well, is there going to be a run on the banks? Are, are the banks going to fail? Well, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but if you're putting all of your stock in the banks, at some point, the banks are going to fail you. Because whatever you're putting your trust and your confidence in as your source, if it's not the Lord Jesus Christ, at some point, at some level, it will always fail you. If, if financial success and prosperity, if this is my God, then what's going to happen when it, it, it evaporates? My joy and my contentment in life will evaporate with it. There's a lot of people, you read in the news, you remember back in 2008, and even it was sort of like what happened in 1929 with the stock market collapse where where wealthy, successful businessmen leapt to their own deaths from high-rise buildings because of the millions that were lost in the crash. Why would someone do that? What would lead a person to take their own life? I mean, by the way, we saw this just recently. What would lead a man to murder his wife and son 
to try to make up for some type of financial loss and scrutiny that he was, what would lead a person to do that? I'll tell you what it is. Idols are cruel. False gods are cruel. They don't bring you life, but they destroy your life. And if that's your source, the source of your life, when it becomes polluted, then to you, life is no longer worth the living. The point is, an idol will always disappoint you in the end. So the first plague is this plague of the Nile River becoming blood. Now, look at the second plague. You move into chapter 8, and I won't read the text, but I'll, I'll just refer to it. The second plague involves frogs, the proliferation of frogs all throughout the land of Egypt. Now, did a little research this week. Um, I read where there are more than 6,000 species of frogs worldwide, if you can imagine that. Among the smallest is a particular tree frog in Cuba that's only a half an inch in total length, just a tiny little fella. And among the biggest frogs is the West African Goliath frog that can be as large as a domesticated house cat and weigh a total of seven pounds. Now, let me ask you this question. How would you like to find that sucker in your swimming pool filter as you're cleaning out your pool? When Anita and I worked at uh, Christian camp, she was the lifeguard, and so I would go down oftentimes and help her clean out the pool filters and the traps and all of that, and sometimes you wouldn't believe what we would find in those traps at that pool. The pool was sort of in a creek bottom, and so frogs were notorious for, for getting in the pool and getting in the, the filter and all of that. I remember cleaning out the filter one, one afternoon, and I, I lifted up the little box, and I kid you not, I, find, I found myself literally eyeball to eyeball with the biggest frog this side of the Mississippi, right there in that pool filter. It's a scary thing. Now, you might think, well, a plague of frogs, that sounds kind of silly. I can think of a lot more animals that could have been more dangerous. What about a plague of crocodiles? Why frogs? Well, there's a spiritual lesson that's being conveyed here. And again, remember, this is God's judgment on the idols of Egypt. So notice a few things here. Uh, there's an advance warning that's given in the first part of chapter 8. And again, this is, this is God in his faithfulness. He's sending Moses to Pharaoh saying, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. God is saying, I've not changed my mind on this issue. Your refusal to repent and believe has not changed my mind in the least, but if you refuse to let the people go, I'm going to plague your country with frogs so that the Nile will swarm with frogs that come up into your house and your bedroom and your bed and the houses of you and all of your people. Now, a plague of frogs. What's going on here? Well, frogs held sacred significance to the ancient Egyptians because in many ways, the frog represented fruitfulness and abundance and the blessing of a harvest. And so this concept came about as the result of the flooding of the Nile River, which continued all the way through mid-September every year. So that by the middle of December, when the river had returned to its normal levels, the receding waters had left many pools and ponds scattered all throughout the Nile River Delta, ponds which were then inhabited by frogs whose chorus rang out on those balmy Egyptian nights. It was sweet, sweet music to the farmers of Egypt because 
It indicated that the gods who controlled the Nile had made the land fertile and they had completed their work. And so here's what that led the Egyptians to do. They literally deified the frog so that it too became an object of their worship. And they associated the frog with with a goddess that they, they referred to as Heket, the goddess of fertility. The goddess that was responsible for, for bringing, uh, breathing life. She was also the goddess that was associated with women in childbirth. Now, now listen to this. This is so good because this suggests that there may have been a connection between this second plague and Pharaoh's initial sin. Not the Pharaoh of Exodus 7, but another Pharaoh. The initial sin that we read about in the early chapters of Exodus, the sin against the Hebrew infants and midwives. You remember how Exodus began with uh, the attempted infanticide and the murderous plan that Pharaoh had to exterminate the Israelites? He commands the Hebrew midwives to kill the babies. They refuse to do that, so he plans to have the infants thrown into the Nile River. So think about these first two plagues and how this is seen as an act of God's justice that he's turning the very instrument that they used to murder Hebrew children. God is turning it into blood. And now in this second plague, he is executing judgment against the very goddess that they associated with pregnancy and fertility and bearing children. Wow. And it's the height of moral blindness that Pharaoh and his officials would never think of killing a frog. It was highly illegal to kill a frog in ancient Egypt. In fact, it was punishable by death because it was such a sacred animal. And yet, they had no problem drowning the Hebrew baby boys in the Nile River. But save the frogs, but kill the babies. And it's not unlike the thinking behind so many animal rights activists and those on the left at our own time who are far more concerned about the rights of certain animals than they are the lives of the unborn. Some of the very ones who are so adamant in protecting a particular species of animal have absolutely no problem whatsoever arguing for the right of someone to murder their unborn child in the womb. Someone says, where does that type of thinking come from? It comes from idolatry. Where an object of creation is taken and elevated to some deified, idolized status in a person's heart that that then leads to a reduction in in, in their, their fellow man and how they view other people made in the image of God. Because with idolatry also comes a reduced view of humanity. Where there's an idol that's enthroned in your heart, I guarantee you that will lead you in some way to treat your fellow man with contempt which is why the greatest commandment is loving the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. And Jesus said the second is likened to it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. Because when Christ is enthroned in the heart of a worshiper, when God is first in my life, then then and only then can I love my neighbor as I would love myself. But where something else other than God is enthroned in my heart, that's going to lead in some way to a reduced view of humanity. Because if it's a power God that's occupying the supreme place in your heart, then that'll lead you to be controlling and manipulative in your relationships with people. 
The God of lust is enthroned in your heart that will lead you to objectify others who were made in the image of you. See how that works? And so there's an amphibious problem then that's widespread in Egypt. God says, you're going to worship the frog, you're going to worship creation and not the creator, then let me just overrun your country with these little critters. I remember coming across a poem from a children's book called A Night of Frogs. It said something like this, a frog lives in our garden in a pond beneath the tree. I hear it croak at bedtime as it says goodnight to me. A frog lives near our driveway on a post below the light. I sneak outside to see it because it's only there at night. A frog lives in our laundry in the corner of the wall. I check on it soon after to make sure it doesn't fall. The frog lives in our kitchen in the space behind the sink. It freezes in the torchlight when I get myself a drink. A frog lives in our bathroom, a big and frightful toad. It isn't where it should be, swimming in my commode. My mom comes in the bathroom and plants a kiss upon my head. The frogs are fine just where they are, but you should be in bed. That's all well and good, but if you were an Egyptian, you'd discover that the frogs were in your bed too. Because no matter where they went, they couldn't get away from these slimy old croakers. And to make matters worse, the Egyptians come along and they try to do the same thing and counterfeit the miracle. But here's the thing. If they were really able to produce miracles, why couldn't they make frogs disappear? When you already have an abundance of frogs, it really isn't a miracle to make more frogs appear. So the irony is they're not helping the situation out. They're only exacerbating the problem. And then the astonishing answer is seen. Now look at this, verse 8, Pharaoh calls Moses and Aaron, and here's what he says, plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. It's a false confession, though. You know, people make all kinds of promises when they're in trouble, but as soon as the smoke clears and the trouble subsides, their promises are soon forgotten. I can't tell you the number of times I've went to visit someone in a hospital or went to someone's home that's been through some type of tragedy, someone that I've been praying about, someone that maybe is a family member that a church member has really said, Pastor, really would love for you to go by and visit my my husband. I think of one lady in particular, the second church I served, her husband. She, She, every Sunday, she would always have some type of prayer request for her husband's salvation. I went to witness him to him at one point, and he'd had some real health problems. And I remember having a conversation with him and him telling me, now, Pastor, I promise you, I'm going to be in church Sunday. A few days came. I was excited. I thought I might see him with her on Sunday. He wasn't there. Because oftentimes when a person gets put between a rock and a hard place, now, some people, they they break and they buckle. But then some folks are like Pharaoh and they make all the promises in the world but there's no genuineness there. There's no real repentance there. And so Moses says, you just name a time and I'll pray and I'll ask God to take the frogs away. And here's how we know Pharaoh's not serious because he says, tomorrow. Now I don't know about you, but if I, I was being overrun by frogs, I think I'd say, how about right now, Moses, let's just, me and you have a little talk with Jesus. Let's get down on our knees right now and ask him to take away these things. 
But no, he procrastinates, he delays, he makes excuses, he puts it off until tomorrow. And those who aren't interested in repentance, they always come up with every excuse in the world as to why they can't obey. Now, I've got to close. I'm going to leave you with this last plague. Plague number three is a plague of gnats. Verse 16 of chapter 8, God tells Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it becomes gnats in all the land of Egypt. Older translations may say lice. The Hebrew word that's used there is the word kanim, which is a word that describes tiny, biting little insects which may be in keeping with lice or even mosquitoes, some have thought. But the ancient Egyptians worshipped a god named Geb that they thought was lord of the land. And they often associated their, their successful harvest and the growth of their crops with Geb, who was lord of the land. But you see, here God is demonstrating his sovereignty even over the land that they worship because God is taking microscopic dust and he's transforming it into swarming insects and gnats. And what you see with these plagues really is creation's reversal. Their world is literally coming unraveled around them. In many ways, this is sort of opposite of what you see happen in Genesis chapter 1 when God takes chaos and disorder and brings order. Well, here he's reversing the created order itself and bringing chaos upon the Egyptians because, listen, that's where idolatry always leads. And the chaos that we're experiencing in our own times can be traced right back to this same type of idolatry that wants to take man or some part of creation and enthrone it within the heart and make it ultimate and say, this is my source. But it only leads to greater chaos. And yet, despite all of that, Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. Isn't that something? Even as his world was coming undone around him, Pharaoh's heart remains hardened. There are some folks who are so persistent in their sin, their unbelief, and their idolatry that they can't even, maybe if they see the consequences of their idolatry, they, they sort of close their eyes and they stop up their ears and they refuse to deal with it because they're bent on going their own way. Now, my friend, listen, I don't know about you, you may, you may say, okay, well, for me, here's, here's, here's what life is really all about. You say, well, life for me is financial prosperity. That's my source. Or my health, that's my source. We would call this identity. Some people, their whole identity is all wrapped up in what other people say about them, what other people think about them. Their last name, their social class their race, their ethnicity, all of these things that people are saying, this is who I am. And now you hear people say, I just, I, I don't know who I am. I'm going to go on a quest to discover who I am. Well, here's my question. If you don't know who you are, how will you know you will find you once you find you? Because the Scripture never tells us to go about seeking our identity in something. No, the Scripture says, 
God says, turn to me and be saved, all ye ends of the earth. You look to me. So if I were to sum all of this up and bullet down to one lesson, one simple takeaway lesson, it would simply be this. Jesus and Jesus alone is the source of my life. Not how much money I've got in my bank account. Not in religion. A lot of people try to find their identity in some type of religion. And religion itself becomes their God. No, Jesus and Jesus alone is the source of my life. Because only Jesus bled and died for me. Only Jesus rose again from the. Only Jesus reconciles me to a holy God. Only Jesus satisfies and quenches the thirst deep within my soul because Jesus says, I am living water. He tells the woman at the well of Samaria in John chapter 4, listen, this, this well, that, this water you think so very important that you think is your source, you're going to get thirsty again. And you're going to get thirsty again. And you're going to get thirsty again. But Jesus says, if you, if, you, if you receive the water that I give you, the water that I give, you'll never thirst again. And he says in John chapter 7, verse 37, that the water that I give, anyone who believes in me, I'm going to put a well, an artesian well of water deep within your soul, springing up into everlasting life. It's the gift of the Spirit. So that a Christian is someone who doesn't turn to idols and other things as their source. But ultimately, they recognize that Jesus and Jesus alone is their source. Will you stand with me for prayer this morning? Can you say that? With integrity this morning, that Jesus Christ and Jesus alone is your source of life. You say, Pastor, all of my hope and all of my trust and all of my confidence is in Jesus. He's my source. Not the financial markets. Because listen, when Jesus is your source, when the financial markets are up, when the financial markets are down, you're still at peace because Jesus is your source. You say, Jesus is my source, not what people think about me. Because if what people think about you, ultimately, if your reputation is your source, then whenever people are saying things that aren't true, they will be so destructive to you if that's your source. That will lead you to the point of despair. But when Jesus is your source, then you can be at peace no matter what people say, no matter what's going on in the world around you, no matter who's in office, when Jesus is your source. Do you know him this morning? Father, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word. Lord, you and you alone are the source of our life, not idols that we cling to. God, if there be any areas in life that we're tempted, Lord, to retreat into, to seek refuge in, to try to seek our identity in, to try to set up as our source, then Lord, forgive us and help us see, oh, sweet Lord, that Jesus and Jesus alone is our source 
and our salvation. In his name I pray. Amen.